Over the years, I've done many crisis exercises with executives and you sometimes get challenged on this will never happen. And I think, you know, unfortunately what we've seen is, as I say, those severe scenarios can happen now. This tendency in everybody thinks in disaster movies that uh, you have this, you know, action figure like Tommy Lee Jones in Volcano where uh, one person has all the answers and makes all the decisions. It turned out that actually slows down and gums things up. And in crisis, the one thing crisis rooms always have is a lot of food. <laughs> always. A lot of sugar, I found. <laughs> Absolutely. Having worked in a lot of political crises, I agree. And, and lots of late night pizza. From PwC's management publication, Strategy and Business, this is Take On Tomorrow, the podcast that brings together experts from around the globe to figure out what business could and should be doing to tackle some of the biggest issues facing the world. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, a journalist in New York. And I'm Aisha Hazarika, a columnist and in a former life, a senior political advisor in London. In this episode, we're talking about disasters and how to prepare for them, even though most often you don't know what you're preparing for. We talk to Craig Fugate, the man who fixed the U.S. government's emergency response after its mishandling of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And who came up with an ingenious way of measuring damage from a big storm by seeing if he could get a waffle at an American diner. If there was anything going to be open during or after a storm was going to be Waffle House. And since there were so many of them, it became an effective tool. Fugate is the former head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. And he talks about the right way to deal with disasters, what businesses can do to help, and the threats of climate change that we're not talking about enough. That conversation is coming up shortly. But first today, we're also joined by Bobby Ramsden-Knowles. Bobby is a crisis and resilience partner with PwC UK. And Bobby, you are here to talk about disasters. Always fun. It is indeed. Thank you for having me. I'm so interested to talk to you because I have covered many disasters in my career. The aftermath of Katrina, the BP oil spill, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And I'm really curious to hear your expertise. Um, Bobby, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the situations you've handled and how you walk into a crisis situation and begin talking to corporate leaders. I've worked on a real variety of different types of crises over the years, ranging from industrial relations action to offshore gas leaks and product recalls, uh, manufacturing incidents. So my job often is to go in and work with the crisis leader to help them take that step back and to really consider what are the issues they're facing? How is this going to play out over the longer term? And how can they best prepare themselves and the organisation to respond to it? And obviously you go in and and help a lot of organisations when a a bad thing happens. But how can you help advise or get your business or client to understand about trying to look ahead and foresee and plan for disasters? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because if I think over the years, you know, pandemic has been on the risk register, geopolitical tension has been there. And they're not necessarily the scenarios we've planned for or exercised. A few years ago, we might not have felt they are plausible, but what we're seeing now is those high-impact events are absolutely plausible. Yeah, like take nothing off the table. Think of the worst thing that could happen, because it could happen, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, over the years, I've done many crisis exercises with executives, and 
you sometimes get challenged on this will never happen. <laughs> and I think, you know, unfortunately what we've seen is, as I say, those severe scenarios can happen now. I think one of the big mistakes sometimes organisations make is thinking that actually having a, a crisis plan is, is, is it. You know, as long as we've got the plan, we're good. But it's people who manage crises. It's not, it's not the documents. The documents are great and they are absolutely necessary. But for me, one of the biggest lessons out of COVID was people manage crises and we need to invest in much as their leadership and how you respond under pressures we do is writing the plans. I have a question about the people component of this, because I think this is something that we have seen very much over the past two years. People are exhausted. Their nerves are frayed. They snap. They're tired. They need extra support. So how is that something that you present to an executive or an HR team and say, look, you're going to have to prop your people up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to doing reviews on the back of COVID to look at what worked well and and actually what could be improved. And I think one of the common lessons was people adapted well and responded well, actually, but it's operating in those crisis structures and teams for a long period of time, which really put pressure on people. And also coupled with that, having to work in new ways and family pressures. And when we talk to executives and as you say, HR teams, it's about personal resilience and actually, how do you help people who are responsible for leading in a crisis build their own personal resilience? One of the really interesting things I've always thought is that in a crisis, actually, people often don't want to leave. They really want to do well for the company, for those who are impacted. But one of the best things you can do is make sure that you're giving people, making people take a break in order to recover. That recovery is even more important when you're operating under pressure. We run a lot of training with crisis leaders specifically to help them really think through, as I say, how do they react under pressure? How does their behaviour change? And how visible is that behaviour? You know, when I'm under pressure, I, it's very obvious my behaviour changes and that's, that's very clear. Whereas you get some people who you can't see the stress, you can't see the pressure. And actually, it's very difficult to manage and lead those people because you can't quite adapt your style to manage that. The people who shove it all down inside. Yeah. And actually, they're amazing because you never see the stress. So you think they're totally fine. See, I'd be really good in a situation like that because I just start panic eating. So you'd, I mean, I kind of equal a new bit. That would be a clear <laughs> indicator. That's, well, that would be a very, yeah. very. And in crisis, the one thing crisis rooms always have is a lot of food. <laughs> always. A lot of sugar, I found. Having worked in a lot of political crises, I agree. And, and lots of late night pizza. Always. That is the... <laughs> always. Yeah. Well, Bobby, we're going to come back to you and talk some more in a minute. But first, Lizzie, we're going to hear the fascinating interview that you've done with Craig Fugate. Yes. So Craig Fugate was the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, during the Obama administration. And FEMA's primary mission is to support people and first responders on the ground before, during, and in the aftermath of disasters. Craig's term began four years after Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. I covered the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I spent a lot of time there in the months and years after the disaster. And I can tell you that pretty much anyone in Louisiana will say that FEMA's response to Katrina was woefully inadequate. So when Craig took over in 2009, he had a lot to figure out, really. 
What do you do with an organization reputationally that has lost the trust of the public? And before he ran FEMA, he was in charge of a state version, Florida's Emergency Management Agency. So that's the sort of state version of FEMA. Exactly. He was an emergency management professional. And one of the things he had come up with is what I think is famous in disaster response circles and nerdy circles is something called the Waffle House Index. (laughs) Okay, what is a Waffle House? It sounds like my kind of place. A Waffle House, for those of you who are not familiar, is a big thing in the American South. And it's basically a breakfast restaurant, though you can eat your waffles and pancakes and eggs at any time of the day. And it is also known as a place that gets open really quickly after a disaster. So I'm going to let Craig describe how he invented the Waffle House Index. Well, the Waffle House Index came out of the 2004 hurricane season. Uh, The first storm we got hit with that year was Hurricane Charlie, which was a Category 4 hurricane. It was not very large, but where it hit was just very concentrated damage across the state. We were basically putting in, you know, 16, 18-hour days. So breakfast was about the only meal you knew you could get. And it was nice to have a hot meal and a cup of coffee before you start your day. And we'd start early. We'd start at 5 o'clock. And so the first thing we found open was a Waffle House. Went in and got breakfast. And if you've ever been to a Waffle House, they have these big, bright, laminated menus with all this food on there. And we go sit down, and the waitress hands us a piece of paper that was mimeographed. What's this? It says, well, we lost power, so we had to throw everything out of the freezer. So all we got is what's on here. And so we ate breakfast and uh, got our coffee and took off and ran our day. And one of the things we were trying to do was get faster in response. And throughout my career, I was always taught that, you know, locals get hit, they assess, they determine what they need, they make the request to the state. And we were always told, you know, basically be prepared for the first 72 hours to handle it by yourselves. And I said, why? Well, it turns out by the time you assess and do all that stuff, it's about 72 hours before you start moving stuff. I'm like, well, if we know a bad hurricane hit, why don't we just go? Well, we don't know what they need. I'm like, this is Florida. We've been through enough hurricanes. We can pretty well figure it out. But then it raises another question. Hurricanes generally don't have really sharp borders like a tornado does. And so you'd be driving in, you start seeing damages, you know, trees down, billboards down, you know, stuff like that. The question was, where do you stop? Well, as we were driving out, what we tell, you know, the, the kind of start was the joke was, if you get there and the Waffle House is open, got a full menu, it ain't that bad, keep going. If you get there and the Waffle House Open has a limited menu, it's probably got more to do with mass care issues, taking care of folks, no power, maybe no water, but not really where the search and rescue teams need to go to work. But if you get there where the Waffle House is closed because of the storm, uh, start going to work because you're in the heavy hit area. So two of the guys I was working with, uh, a major in the Florida National Guard, Tad Warfel, and our state meteorologist, Ben Nelson, we were doing slides. We had a bunch of counties hit, and we were just using a stoplight, red, yellow, and green to indicate, you know, power outages, water outages, search and rescue. And, and each county was either red, yellow, or green. It was showing our progress. And they put a slide in there, and it was, if the Waffle House was closed because of the disaster, that was red. If the Waffle House was open but had a limited menu, it was yellow. And if the Waffle House was open and had a full menu, it was green. That's the Waffle House Index. I think the biggest observation I came away from was, We were doing what I call government-centric problem-solving. We always thought about what government was going to do. And we weren't really thinking about the private sector. And in a lot of cases, I found out the private sector is already doing stuff, and we need to pay attention to them. So I want to actually dig into some of the private sector, public sector stuff in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you about FEMA, because 
you took over in 2009, and I think it's fair to say that FEMA had had some pretty bad years before that. How do you come into an agency, an organization that has been through something like that and failed a lot of people and turn it around? Like, what, what do you say to the people? Well, I just said, we're going to do our jobs. Quit worrying about um, what people are thinking, and we're not going to do a bunch of PR to try to you know fix our image. And I would always tell people, so look, I'm not going to tell you FEMA's better. We're going to do our job. If anybody's going to tell you we're better, it's going to be the people we're serving and the government we're helping. And what did that involve? Kind of bit by bit, what are the things that a government can do right in the immediate aftermath of a disaster? And, and what do they do wrong? Well, we can speed up. And this came out of the, well, after Hurricane Katrina, Congress passed, uh, you know, they had the hearings, they did the report, they passed some updates to the legislation. One of the things they clarified was that FEMA did not have to wait for a formal request from a governor to start responding. And this is what was always the key thing was, until a governor asks and the president approves, those disaster funds, in many cases, people felt they couldn't use them. I remember a lot of pushback from folks saying, well, you know, we're going to have the IG come in here and say we're being wasteful. And I'm like, yeah, I ain't going to worry about the IG. Well, there's going to be hearings. I said, hearings are binary. If it's a bad disaster, there's going to be hearings, no matter what. So there's two hearings you're going to walk into. One, you didn't send enough stuff fast enough, and you're going to get fired. Or the hearing where you sent too much stuff and spent too much money, and nobody suffered because of that. I said, this isn't retail. The likelihood that you know we're going to be precise is 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 not very high. You just got to be close. And the bigger the event, the more you need to bring. So I'm listening to you, and it makes so much sense when you're thinking about a government agency. But let's say you run a company, right? And you're listening to this conversation right now, and there is a similar tension. If I'm, you know, Walmart, and I'm able to pre-position my trucks to where I see there's a potential cone of uncertainty around a hurricane, that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, that's a big outlay of money. I might get in trouble with my shareholders, or investors could be mad at me. How should executives think about this? How should they be kind of trying to plan around an incipient disaster? Well, they actually told me the answer because I was asking, what's in it for you? Because it's always return on investment. They said, we don't want to be the store that's closed when our competitors open. And there was actually an arms race. I saw this in Florida where uh, in the beginning in 2004, power was out. Usually all the grocery stores would be closed. Uh, you know, drug stores would be closed. By the end of the 2004 hurricane season, they were getting generators in. They were setting up in their parking lots. Uh, you were getting portable uh, drugstores that were in you know, RVs that would pull up with their satellites and start doing prescriptions. And this is what the grocery folks told me. He says, you know how much it cost us to get a customer to come shop at our store on a regular basis, just not on sales? Most people grocery shop by pattern and habit. You go to the same grocery store. But if your store is closed, and their competitors open and you go there. Once you start shopping there, it's not likely you're going to go back to your original store. And so there was it was interesting listening to them. They had learned that if they're not open and serving their community and their customers are, they're losing market share. Well, let's talk a little bit about climate change. How much should CEOs, executives, et cetera, be folding climate-related planning into how they think about the next two years, five years, 10 years? 
Well, the most immediate thing I need to make sure people understand is the climate has already changed. This is not something that's 10 years down the road. And while a lot of emphasis at the uh, investor level and CEO level have been about reducing greenhouse gases, there's been enough change that what we're seeing now is most companies have not looked at adapting to the changed environment they're in. But the question is, how does the change impact your bottom line? We talk about climate change as an international global phenomenon, right? It's the climate. And yet communities experience it differently. Leaders plan for it differently. And and as we know from history, lower income, often minority and marginalized communities are hit the hardest. I wonder if there is a way to get local communities to interface with the national challenge and, and a way to make things a little more equitable. What you're describing is what I call the resiliency divide. And it goes back to, historically, FEMA has provided mitigation dollars, usually after disasters. But Congress, after the uh, 2017 hurricane season, gave FEMA a lot more authority to spend money before a disaster on reducing the impacts of what we call mitigation. They created a program called BRIC, Building Resilient Infrastructure in Communities. And the current administration has increased that to, in the last uh, uh, infrastructure bill, to over a billion dollars. That's real money. Problem is, historically, we put so much emphasis on risk avoidance measured in dollars. And, and this is a classic thing in the emergency management circles that, you know, for every dollar we invest in mitigation, we'll save, you know, anywhere from four to nine dollars in cost. And what that did, it wasn't intentional. Nobody... I think saw this coming, but it started creating this resiliency divide where communities that had the grants management staff and had the ability to, to apply for and manage grants did best. And the properties they tended to invest in were the higher value properties. Because if I got a project that costs $100,000 and it's in a affordable housing section or it's on the lakefront where all the expensive homes, I'll save more money with the lakefront homes because they're much more valuable. And so the Bias was we were driving it towards the more affluent parts of the community, the more affluent properties, and in many cases, populations that probably had the financial resources to weather a disaster better at the expense of the most vulnerable. So part of what FEMA is trying to get to now is move away from just a numerical value of how many dollars are risk avoidance and really look at the impacts to the community, to people. Craig Fugate, thank you so much for a thoughtful interview and conversation. My pleasure. So that was Craig Fugate talking to my co-host, Lizzie O'Leary. And we're joined again now by Bobby Ramsden-Knowles, a crisis and resilience partner with PwC UK. And Bobby, one of the things I was really struck by from Craig's interview was he made the point that climate change is here. The climate has already changed. And that is providing significant risk to organisations, to businesses, to governments as well. How much time do you think businesses think about the risks of climate change? Oh, I think it's it's on the top of most organisations' agendas right now. It's, it's absolutely part of the ESG strategy that, that every, you know most organisations are working on right now because there's absolutely the the external stakeholder expectation that they are and I think there's going to be an interesting period of time where a lot of commitments have been made 
around how do we respond and manage climate risk through ESG strategy. And I think there will be a lot of pressure on organisations to be able to deliver on those commitments. Do you think that business is more willing to have frank conversations about climate change than, than some political leaders because the stakes are different? I think they are because they see the critical role they can play and investors see that as well. Um, and, and coupled with that, there is that change in societal expectation and a change in consumer behaviour as well. So I think all of that has really driven a change in how business is, is responding and, and they are playing a really critical role in it. And are there common themes that you see among businesses that respond well? I think that the organisations who respond well are the ones that always think about the people or who customers, victims are impacted and put them first. So they've got to be at the absolute priority of the response. I think it's the organisations who have the courage to apologise and to say sorry when they should. That's a real negative for me is where companies have got it really wrong is where they've been driven by perhaps their legal response and have refused to apologise. And that that's really impacted trust and reputation and stakeholder confidence. Bobby, when you're in a situation like that and you've got this tension, let's say, between the legal team and the comms team and, and, and the leadership, what advice do you give them? Or can you give us some examples of you know where you've had to be quite tough, as, as Lizzie suggested? I should say that they have different perspectives for very good reasons because, you know, they're there to do different jobs around that executive table. So, you know, that's why you sometimes see the tension. My advice is always to come back to what are you trying to achieve? And actually setting out those objectives right from the beginning and being very clear, actually, what are the priorities here? If, it, if your priority is people over finance and commercial and legal, then that people priority needs to guide that decision. And that might have some legal implications and they may need to be managed, but ultimately you need to put that that people priority first. It's interesting to hear you talk about saying, I'm sorry, because I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the position might have been, well, I don't know, there might be too much legal risk in saying we're sorry or issuing an apology But I wonder if the kind of continued scrutiny we see now with a 24-hour news cycle and with social media has made it more important to apologize. I think so. And again, I'm not not naive to the fact of how difficult that apology can be because of the legal reasons. It's It's never easy. However, it goes back to what do people expect of you? And if you've built up trust and social capital with your stakeholders, you want to maintain that during a crisis. But there's only so much credit you can draw on. Are there any examples from your career or just that you've watched of sort of great crisis management that you come back and think about as a template? I think for me, the the, the points that where I've seen teams and leaders do it really, really well are that where they're very clear on what they're trying to achieve. So they don't jump in to try and fix the problem straight away. They take a step back and think about what are our priorities here. It's so hard. And actually, most exercises we run, crisis teams don't do it. And I I, I totally get it. And I've 
I've worked, you know, in industry myself, so and and been part of crisis teams, and I I understand it. But it's the most one of the most important things because the organisations that have rehearsed, you know, you can tell um, when you go into a crisis situation, the organisation who has done their exercising, done the training. So they might not have done it for this scenario, but they know every team that's been mobilised knows its remit. They know how to escalate, who to escalate to. It's clear where decisions are made. And also, the finally, the other bit is they are they don't just focus on the immediate. They think about the long term. So they have either a separate group of people or some of the executive. They look at the long-term scenario planning. How will this scenario play out for us in the long term? What are the, the risks that we're going to have to mitigate? If we can't mitigate those risks, how do we prepare? What's our longer-term goal here? Having that discussion, again, is very hard when you're trying to, you're in the midst of it, but it's really, really important to get to do that as well. So we really covered a lot of ground with Craig earlier in my interview, and one of the big lessons was on pre-planning. And Bobby, that is something that you have highlighted. And I wonder if you can say how you maybe break through in a moment where a board or a leadership says, yeah, 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 we have all our response plans in place. How do you come in and say, or, or do you say, yeah, that's not quite enough? I think what's really changed crisis planning is uh, cyber risk, ransomware. So I've been um, working in crisis management for about 18 years now. And I would typically have said that my, my advice to the exec was always to have a enterprise-wide crisis framework that you can activate for any type of crisis. You may have some specific uh, high-level playbooks for a certain scenario, but really you're reliant on that, that one framework. To some degree, I think that's been challenged, actually, by ransomware. Because ransomware, for me, it presents in the same way often for many organisations in terms of the impacts you're likely to see. But the impacts can be so severe. So actually planning for that specific scenario, I, I really recommend to organisations now. So it, go, it goes beyond the type of planning I think we've done previously. And it really gets an organisation to think through if we were hit with ransomware and we had a total loss of IT, how would we recover? How would we operate as a business? And actually, that's the type of crisis that can really threaten the long-term viability of a company. In a ransomware attack, I would imagine that there are sort of multiple fronts here, that you have the potential total loss of your IT and computer systems, but you also have this question of, do we pay out? Do we try to negotiate? Do we try to figure out who's attacking us? Do you have to break those things out when you're talking to a company and have that plan beforehand? Or is that something that you work with in the moment? You can map out a lot of those considerations as part of your playbook. And I think actually ransomware needs a playbook for your exec, so definitely. And I think also, though, when we go in to help clients when they have been hit by ransomware, that is often you know, we will be there helping them think through all of the different considerations, including how and when do they communicate with stakeholders, for example, um, and what are the different reputation risks that they're facing from this type of crisis? Well, it's been so interesting um, hearing your insights, Bobby, particularly having been in the room at that very, very difficult, difficult moment. I mean, Lizzie, your, your reflections and what we've just heard and of course your great interview with Craig. I think the two things that are sticking with me, one is that sugar is obviously very important to have. (laughs) 
very important. But another thing that struck me, and this seems to apply no matter where you are in the world or how you're thinking about managing a crisis or what governments you're interfacing with, this idea of taking a beat, taking a breath, not rushing immediately into kind of function mode, actually taking a moment to assess that. That seems like a universal piece of advice that can be applied no matter where you are and what kind of crisis you're handling. And and I was really struck by listening to Bobby say that. I would really agree with that. And also the realization that a crisis is not just a one-off thing that happens and then it goes away. We are living in the era of, of almost perpetual crisis at the moment and things just being so out of your control. And, and that point you made earlier about, you know, when you're doing your scanning the horizon and it's like, think of like the most mad thing that could happen and it probably will happen. And we all have to prepare ourselves and that's, you know, planning, lots of business planning, but there's also a lot of psychological planning and emotional planning you Mm. have to do because it it does take its toll on leadership, um, on people, on, on societies, but really, really fascinating insights. Yeah, Bobby, thank you so much for rolling with our questions and exploring all of these issues with us. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll be asking, will blockchain, the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies, transform the financial system? And the computer science that Web 3.0 is built on is blockchain and it's blockchain networks. And that is why I actually am encouraging industry leaders to spend time and educate themselves on it because it will it will grow with Gen Z. Right. And they're graduating college. And here they come. Take on Tomorrow is brought to you by PwC's Strategy and Business. PwC refers to the PwC network and or one or more of its member firms, each of which is a separate legal entity.